Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley, joined by Peter Kadzis. Hello, Peter. Hey, Adam. So ordinarily, as our regular listeners will know, I try to offer an intro that ties up the events of the past few days into kind of a neat little synopsis. But I have to say it is almost impossible to know how to do that right now because there is so much happening at one time, much of it deeply interrelated, all of it, to my mind, somewhat frightening and daunting. We've got the ongoing global COVID pandemic, protests sweeping the country in the aftermath of George Floyd's killing, President Trump threatening to use the Insurrection Act to send the U.S. military out against American citizens who are protesting. Uh, it's hard to know how to how to tie that all up neatly. But Peter Kadzis, you live right by Franklin Park, where there was that big protest uh, organized by Monica Cannon Grant and uh, perhaps some others this past Wednesday. From your vantage point, right by Franklin Park, as this big event was happening, what did you see and what stood out to you? Well, what I saw was like the, you know, some of the ethnic festivals, the Dominican festival that were held up there, people just streaming. I wish I could put that in italics and underline it, you know, streaming up my street, Peter Polly Road, where, where, you know, parking is tight, but where was that day impossible to get a parking spot? Um, most of the people I saw going up um, were white, not exclusively. A lot of young couples, people holding hands and their handmade signs going up. It, it from my neck of the woods, it very much had the feel of um, a very neighborhood, even though it was citywide. You, you know, it was, we are a city of neighborhoods, and that's what it felt like. Uh, even, you know, my 21-year-old son went up there. He met guys he went to Latin school with and um, a few other families of friends. You mentioned your son going to the protest. Um, you and I, and I'm saying this in part by way of full disclosure for our listeners, you and I have been working on this this story that I've been doing about the risks of COVID transmission at protests and how people who are in favor of protesting are uh, balancing those risks with their desire to be heard, steps that can be taken to mitigate the risk. Uh, I just feel like I got to point out my daughter, as you know, I live in the suburbs. I live in Swampscott. My daughter, who is 14, wanted to go to a protest uh, a couple days ago, and I just wasn't comfortable letting her go because I'm concerned about what seems to be a real public health risk attached to these things. Uh, did you have to sort of grit your teeth or hold your breath as you gave your son the okay to go? Or was that not as difficult to do as it was for me when I, when I wrestled with this for my younger kid? He's an adult. He's 21 years old. He's able to make his own decisions. And he had enough common sense to bring a mask and, you know, was ready to hightail it out at the first sign of trouble. But uh, there was no trouble. He, he had some interesting observations. Um, from He's been to several of these demonstrations, and um, he's seen some examples of what struck him as overly aggressive police behavior. But on the whole, and he's been watching the police a lot, he, he said that 
that night up in Franklin Park, the police were bending over backwards to be accommodating. And if anything, there were some people in the crowd who seemed determined to taunt the police or take issue with them, even though there was nothing happening at the moment. But, uh, you know, I want to be careful. I, I, I trust Jack's judgment in his reporting, um, but I wasn't there. I mean, he, he noted that a lot of the cruises he saw were driving with their windows down, talking to people as they slowly drove around. And you may ask, why were some of them driving through? Um, uh, partly to, re- in, in some instances, Jack said it was to reach um, people who would hurt themselves. Well, that's a that's a telling detail. I mean, to have the windows down, speaking with people as opposed to yeah. cordoning themselves off. And obviously, you know, there was that horrific video that's making the rounds today as we talk of the the elderly man who's shoved over by a cop in Buffalo and starts bleeding as the police march on by. So we know that there are radically different ways that some police are comporting themselves right now. Th- that, you know, beating up an old man, there's no way you can justify that. There's no way you can justify a, a cop with his hands in his pockets, you know, kneeling on the neck of a suspect until he chokes the breath out of him. Um, I have to say, I mean, I haven't lived in New York for a long, long time, but looking at a lot of the um, images I've seen from New York City, um, a lot of that strikes me as being awfully close to a police riot. Um, On the other hand, talking to people I know in New York City, they said there's been massive amounts of looting. Um, Looting, you know, in no way connected with the demonstration. Um, And a couple of people said they, you know, feared for their safety from the looters. Um, um, I mean, New York is a case of where you have open warfare on the, the on the streets. De, de Blasio is uh, proving to be one of New York City's very worst mayors. I mean, he makes John Lindsay, the old liberal punching bag, he makes John Lindsay seem like Richard J. Daley of Chicago in his uh, ineffectiveness. Well, since we're talking about police, about uh, things that may have gone right locally, things that have gone horribly wrong elsewhere, I believe this is where you have some observations that you think people may not have encountered elsewhere. You've been thinking about the way policing works in the United States and the implications of our framework for the moment that we're in. What are some of the the big takeaways? Well, I'm reserving the... I'm reserving the right to refine my thinking, but at the moment, you know, I'm starting from the premise that there are 18,000 police forces in the United States. But by the way, I'm drawing that figure from the airwaves. I've heard it repeated on so many different places that it's got to be at least vaguely accurate. Um, that really leads me to believe that police misconduct that the American police state is decentralized. Uh, The American police state is freelance. 
It's made up of um, police officers who are willing, who by nature appoint themselves judge, jury, and in some cases executioner. Now, several years ago, I might have called these officers rogue officers. They're not, and that's why I use the, the term police state, freelance police state, because these officers who use excess force, who engage in brutality, and to sometimes kill civilians, um, are protected by the policemen's union. But the policemen's unions across the nation are aided and abetted by local officials. If it weren't for the pandemic, I'm not sure we'd be having this uprising now. You've got hundreds of thousands, millions of people out of work, quarantined at home. By the way, I'm not questioning their um, commitment to the cause, but no one, very few people have to get up for work the next morning. Um, and by the way, I, I'm not talking about the looters, the vandals, you know, criminals who are engaging in, I, I'm talking about the good people that are out there. And, you know, anyone listening to this knows this is not a new problem. Back in the year 2000, in a Department of Justice study, 20 years ago, found that 84% of the uniform officers interviewed um, said they had witnessed excess use of force. 61% said... Um, they didn't report it and would be unlikely to report it. You know, this DOJ study came out in May, May 2000, um, you know, more or less 20 years ago. What's happened in 20 years? Nothing. You know, according to the Washington Post, last year, 1,400 people um, were the victims of police violence. It died at the hands of the police. Now, that's not to say that there are 1,004 innocent victims. Some of these people died in shootouts with police. This year so far, to date, um, as of yesterday, this um, Washington Post database, which is really one of the only, only authoritative databases in, in the nation, show that 1,023 citizens have died at the hands of the police. We've had this growth of a Blue Lives Matter movement, which didn't exist 20 years ago, as far as I know, largely in response to what was perceived as President Obama's unfair assault on uh, police across the country. The Black Lives Matter movement, which prompted this uh, this um, pushback from police and their supporters. So the numbers may not have changed but there's been this cultural backlash among police and the, the people who identify with them. There was um, a horrible spate of police shootings in the final years and months of the Obama administration. Um, and look, I'm not saying that the police aren't at risk. Um, it's a very risky job. But, but that's sort of changing the topic. Um, the, the, the issue is the number of people the police 
kill, who act when the police act as judge, jury, and executioner. Now, several years ago, there was an instance in then Dudley Square, now Nubian Square, where a white police officer was shot and almost killed. Now, I happened to be working that night, and so it's right up the street. I went up there, and Black Lives Matter showed up and began protesting as if the Boston police were at fault. Commissioner Gross, who was then the chief of police, happened to be there. I never talked to him. I just watched him. He very clearly made it, uh, dissipated the anger because the, the black man who was shot by the police had almost killed another policeman. I remember you talking about watching Grass show up and push back. Yeah, and what I'm saying is every instance of the police use of force is not unjustified. I got you. But the num- it's interesting, too. Uh, again, according to the Washington Post, the numbers of um, white and blacks killed by the police are roughly equal. I think the question is why, if that's the case, why so much outrage on the part of the black community? I think the answer is, is a very simple one. They have more to be outraged about. It's not just the killing of black largely men um, by police, execution without judge and jury. It's also the harassment, um, the, the constantly being stopped. Um, One other thing uh, that I feel like is worth mentioning is if the numbers of people killed by police are roughly equivalent when it comes to white people and African-Americans, the, the base number of white people in the U.S. is a lot higher. So, no, correct. No, I mean, the way I put it is um, America has for years had a problem with, ex- let, let me, an all encompassing term, with excessive use of police force. It's a national problem. It falls disproportionately on communities of color. Um, and what I see happening now. After many years of being asleep at the switch, more people are waking up. Let me ask you to go back to a point that you made a couple minutes ago about the enabling of police unions by elected officials. Can you go into what you mean there in greater detail? Well, let's let me give two examples. First, let's begin in Minneapolis, where um, there was and is a strong reform movement to curb police violence. City councilors who supported the action, if, um, if someone from their district called in, there would be a slow response. And when the, per- when the citizen would call back to say, hey, I called 20 minutes ago, why aren't the police here? The, the, the person was told, the, the citizen complainant was called, um, ask your city councilor. Maybe he can explain why we're taking our time getting there. I mean, there's an example. Let, let me use a trickier example here in Boston. Boston cops wear police cameras, but only 50% of them do. Why is that? Listen, it's the result of negotiation with police unions, with, with, this, with this or that. It is a too complicated a story to get into now. But why in Boston do only 50% of the force wear police cameras. 
let me push farther ahead on this issue of police cameras. We had the shootings in, I believe it was Louisville, and lo and behold, the police cameras weren't on of the officers who were involved. By the way, you, there's a very simple solution to this that any municipal official could adopt. If your police camera's not on, if your police camera is faulty, let's give someone the benefit of the doubt, if your police camera is faulty, you immediately return to the station to get a new one. The same way that if your car, your police car is faulty, you immediately get a new one. Or the same way if your walkie-talkie is faulty, you'd immediately get a new one. There should be penalty, even in the case where no alleged controversy has taken place, a policeman whose camera isn't on or isn't working should suffer sanctions, um, even if it's routine. Do you think that we are going to see a shift in the things that you're talking about, let's say locally in the Boston area in the coming weeks and months? Or do you feel like we're seeing all these issues surface now and as anger over George Floyd's death dissipates, as things calm down, uh, we'll just go back to the status quo? And I ask that in part because right now we're watching this remarkable exchange that's ongoing between Suffolk County DA Rachel Rollins and the Boston Police Patrolmen's Association. Uh, we're seeing Mike Connolly, the state rep who you and I have interviewed here before, make a big point of saying that he has never taken police donations and uh, identifying the acceptance of donations from uh, from police and police unions as, as deeply problematic. Do you think we're going to see big changes or do you think that uh, things will continue as they have been for the past few decades? We'll see some changes. There's too much of a head of steam. And interestingly enough, as much as I think Boston still needs to be reformed, and Mayor Walsh was extremely eloquent on this the other day, um, we'll see how much the mayor can really accomplish. And I say that as a challenge to the mayor. But reform also has to take place in smaller cities and towns. Here's an example, the chokehold. The chokehold is outlawed in Boston. The Boston police are, they, I don't know how to place them in terms of the vanguard of the reform, but Boston police have moved far beyond most other Massachusetts police departments. But in, in most communities, the chokehold using the baton to, to subdue a suspect, you know, by choking them across the neck, um, has not been outlawed. There's a lot of work to be done. Um, and again, what I find so astounding is that this is a problem that I, I think we could almost say is age old. I'll tell you, of all the things, the demonstrations I've seen, one that struck me the most was in West Roxbury at the circle by um, Holy Name Church and right by the West Roxbury police station where, I don't know, maybe 150 people, almost all white families, mothers, fathers, kids, old people, were silently holding Black Lives Matter signs. Now, why is that so important? 
I think to anyone who knows Boston, that's obvious. If, if you have um, a, a group of 100-plus citizens from West Roxbury who are moved by their conscience to make a show on a rotary that's midway between Holy Name Catholic Church and the local police department, I mean, that's a very symbolic, that's a very symbolic thing. That gives me hope. All right. On that upbeat note, Peter Kadzis, good to talk to you as always. Yeah, it's good. The circumstances are strange and distressing. Indeed. And as always, thanks to you for taking the time to listen. Please subscribe to The Scrum if you haven't already. Rate us if you have a chance and feel free to talk back to us. You can email us at scrum at wgbh.org or find us on Twitter. I'm Riley Adam. Peter, you are at Kansas. And our producer, Zoe Matthews, is at Zoe S. Matthews. It's Matthews with one T. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.